I want to begin this morning by making two statements and asking you to decide in your mind which one is true. Statement number one. The unbeliever is powerless to obey the law of God. The unbeliever is powerless to obey the law of God. Or maybe I should say the unbeliever is powerless to truly obey the law of God. Statement number two. The believer is engaged in a struggle with sin. The believer is engaged in a struggle with sin. Which one is true? Trick question, right? Both are true because both are taught in the Bible. Clearly, if you've been here for any part of Romans at all, or if you know anything about the Bible at all, uh, we see that, that even though unbelievers try to do things, they might even be very religious, ultimately, uh, they can't keep God's law in the sense of pleasing God and earning heaven. And so that first statement is true. An unbeliever can't obey the law of God in a way that is pleasing to God. Second statement is true as well. Christians, believers, struggle with sin. There's no question about that really whatsoever, either because both are taught in the Bible. The issue before us today is which one of these truths is taught in Romans chapter 7, verses 13 to 25. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn there, and we'll take a look at this portion of God's Word this morning. Romans seven thirteen to 25. Which is being emphasized here? It's an important question because there's a lot of debate about which is being emphasized in Romans chapter 7. So I wanted to get you thinking in those terms before we read this passage. If you'd follow along with me now as I read verses 13 to 25 of God's Word in Romans chapter 7. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me. May it never be, rather it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. And verse 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur that the law of God in the inner man, with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. And we'll stop there. It's kind of a lot. A lot to get your mind around, a lot to hear. 
familiar words, but sometimes overwhelming and intimidating words because we haven't taken the time to really look closely. And as I said, there's a fair amount of debate. Which is it? Is he a believer here struggling with sin, which is true, that happens? Or is he an unbeliever struggling with trying to obey God, frustrated because he can't and needing deliverance? Well, I want to look at the the debate. But before we do that, so that we don't lose sight of the forest for the trees, because sometimes we read Romans 7 and it's all about just the debate and going back and forth and which one is it, I just encourage you to not lose sight of the forest, to not lose sight of the key, to not lose sight of what is central to all in all of this. Look again at verse 24 as he ends with this frustration. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And he says in verse 25, here's what we may need to make sure we don't overlook. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the high point. That's the answer. If you are an unbeliever trying to keep the, the, the law of God, trying to obey God and earn favor with Him, it's going to only lead to frustration. You could never, ever, ever do it. And so you're at the end of your rope and you say what? Thanks be to God. If you know the Gospel, hope for deliverance from this is in Christ. The same could also be said. If you are a believer and and if you take that view and you're struggling with sin and you're frustrated because you're not seeing victory in your life, the answer is the same. The answer is thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is where I'm going to find my source of strength and where I'm going to have the power to actually please God as a believer. And so, while this morning we're going to look at at the debate and we're going to look at which view and all of that sort of thing, if I could just encourage you as we dialogue about this and as you read this for the rest of your Christian life and maybe as a good example as you're dealing with hard interpretive issues, it's always a good and important thing to step back and say, what is the main point no matter what? And the main point no matter what is to see Christ is central to it all. And it is a tragedy that sometimes we get so caught up in the issues, which are important, I'm not trying to say they're not, that we lose sight of Christ. I don't know about you, but I can't honestly stand before you and say, when someone asks me about Romans 7, the first thing I think of is Jesus Christ. When someone asks me about Romans chapter 7, I think about believer, unbeliever, pros and cons. So I'm a living testimony of just how wrong this whole thing can become just encourage you to think about Christ. That's the high point clearly in this passage. And we need to make sure He is our focus as well. Well, with that said, I'd like to make some introductory comments, uh, preliminary issues, and then look at ten or so reasons. That means I have eleven. Ten or so reasons why I will encourage you in one view and not the other. I'll make you wait to see which view I'm going to create controversy with. Not a typical sermon for me. We'll save that for another day. Today we're going to work on this particular particular issue. In a sense, I'd like you to walk back with me to my study. And uh, what would normally stay in my study, I would like to just share here so we can think through how to think through even a controversial passage like this one. By way of a preliminary, 
a word or two about the history of this passage and what Christians have done with it. For about the first five centuries, the common view, from what I've read historically, the common view was to see this man in Romans chapter 7, verses 13 or 14 to 25, first five centuries, unbeliever. It was commonly held that this man is an unbeliever. And then with Augustine, or Augustine, whichever one you choose, uh, with Augustine, he changed his view. And he went from, from following everyone else, saying this is a believer, to saying it's an unbeliever. And then following him, most people took it that way. Not everyone, but most people did. Then with the Protestant Reformation, with so many of the Reformers getting so much of their doctrine of sin and humanity from Augustine, uh, most Reformers at the time of the Protestant Reformation also said, this man in Romans chapter 7 is a believer. And then ever since... You've seen debate back and forth. And it'll be one way, and then you'll see debate the other way, challenging that view. That's a little bit about the history involved with this particular passage. Another important preliminary is the fact that within different theological traditions, you see both views. Okay? So it's not enough just to say, well, I take the Arminian view. Or I take the Reformed view. Or I take the Evangelical view. And all of those different camps, you've seen both views represented. Sometimes it's nice and neat just to say, well, I just take the view that fits my theological tradition. Well, that would be both views, and then you'd be schizophrenic, and that wouldn't be helpful. So, just to know there's been a difference. Let me choose two different famous uh, Bible teachers in history uh, two generations ago, because we admire them. Uh, you might be familiar with Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous medical doctor turned preacher. Um, he wrote a huge commentary, multi-volume on Romans. Martin Lloyd-Jones held that this man in Romans chapter 7 is an unbeliever. In the strong Reformed tradition, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this man is an unbeliever. Charles Hodge, let's use another big name whose writings are still around, in the Reformed tradition, said this man is a believer. Unbeliever, believer. And so it's not like you can just say, well, I'll pick my favorite person or my favorite tradition either. And a final preliminary would be this. The issues are complicated. Okay? As one New Testament scholar, I don't know anyone more scholarly than this person, and he used this very scholarly language and said, Neither view is a slam dunk. Okay? You just have to remember that. And all of this to say to you, I hope, pastorally, be humble. We need to have a humble attitude. If there's any debate that's an in-house debate, this is one because it's an in-house debate in all these different regions, even of Bible study. So have a humble attitude. Study, work hard, try to understand. But at the same time, we want to have a humble attitude because we're going to, amongst ourselves, no doubt, have different views. Now, it teaches one or the other. I'm not a, a, a flaming uh, postmodern that says it teaches both. But at the same time, one final preliminary, and it will be my first point as well in a second, both of these things are taught in the Bible. And so we want to have a humble stature. Ready to go? Make sense? Welcome to my study. Uh, if you want a sermon, you'll have to get last week's uh, or you'll get next week's, but I thought this would be helpful. 
So what we're going to do now is look at 10 or so, which means 11 this morning, reasons why I believe you should take the man in Romans chapter 7 with humility, take the man in Romans chapter 7 as an unconverted man. Controversy. Some of you take this view. Some of you take the other view. We're going to have to get along. We did before. And uh, I'm going to do my very best to twist your arm and persuade you to reading Romans chapter 7 and to conclude that this individual here is an unbeliever and he needs Christ in a saving sense. But if you take him as a believer and he's struggling, he needs Christ in a sanctifying sense and we can still go to lunch. Fair? Okay, let me pray before we get any further. Father, thank you for this morning again. And Lord, thank you for this opportunity I have to to talk about the issues in Romans chapter 7. And even though it's not going to be a typical sermon, Lord, as uh, it would be, I would pray that it would be edifying and it would be helpful as we want to think about you and think how you work in this world. Uh, Lord, I would ask that it would be more than academic for us, that we would be impressed with Christ and that we would be stretched in our thinking even in this regard. In Jesus' name, amen. And I should say, too, I, I don't mind acknowledging that I'm, I'm indebted specifically to two sources. So those of you who really want to study this on more uh, depth, uh, Robert Raymond in his Systematic Theology has an appendix that deals with this. Uh, and I actually had photocopies of that made, and they're in the bookstore. Um, and not only that, Douglas Moo, who has written a commentary on the book of Romans, which is about the size of the state of Texas, which we have in our library, uh, would also be someone I'm in great debt to with this particular view. First reason to take Romans 7 man as an unbeliever would be that this is not the only struggle passage. This is not the only struggle passage. And what I mean by that is, if you say this man is an unbeliever, you're not giving away the farm. Okay? If you say this man is an unbeliever, you still have an explanation as to why you struggle as a Christian. There's some fear amongst folks that if they say this man is an unbeliever, then there's no passage to go to in the Bible to explain why I as a Christian have a serious struggle going on in my life. Well, you don't need to have that be the only reason you hold your view because if you turn to Galatians chapter 5, you'll see that there is certainly a passage regardless of what Romans 7 teaches. If you go to Galatians chapter 5, we'll see that there is a believer and there is a struggle going on in the believer no matter what Romans 7 teaches. And so there is explanation. I talked to a dear friend of mine. If you're turning to Galatians 5, that will be helpful. A dear friend of mine recently, and, and, and my friend was so concerned because if I say that person is an unbeliever in Romans 7 having that struggle, then, then I have no solution for, for a biblical explanation for why I feel the way I do. And I said, don't have that drive your interpretation of Romans 7. There's hope for you. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 says, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. So there is a battle, there is a war, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. And I don't think there's a lot of debate about that passage. He's talking about this, this, this conflict that happens in our lives if we're Christians. And I have a struggle going on, and it's an internal struggle. And you do too if you're a Christian. 
Not only is there an internal struggle, the Galatians 5 struggle, there's even more explanation if we were to take the time to go to Ephesians chapter 6. There's an external struggle. We actually struggle against the onslaught of Satan and his demons. And so that also explains why we have such a hard time of it sometimes as Christians. And that would be Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. And so, you don't give away the farm, okay? There's an explanation for our struggle. Now let's move on to a second reason why I believe the man in Romans chapter... Now we're getting to the real reasons. The man in Romans chapter 7 is an unbeliever. And the second reason is because he's in bondage to sin. He's in bondage to sin. Look at Romans chapter 7, verse 14. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Whoever this man is, he is in bondage to sin. He is bound to sin. He is, he is imprisoned with sin, or by sin, if you will. Now, here's what we're going to do a lot this morning. We're going to compare what's said in Romans 7 with what's said in Romans 6. In Romans chapter 6, Christians, are, we learn clearly, are not in bondage to sin. Look at Romans chapter 6 with me. We'll do this quite a bit this morning. Romans 7.14, sold into bondage to sin. Well, that's not true of saved people. Look at Romans 6.17. But thanks be to God that, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, and having been freed from sin... You're not bound to sin as a Christian. Look at verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, he's talking about the unbeliever. Then verse 21. Therefore, what benefit there uh, were you then deriving from the things in which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. If you're bound to, by sin, then, then it leads to death for you. Verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome of eternal life. So please see the, the contrast. In fact, the strongest argument for the man in Romans 7 being an unbeliever is Romans 6, as well as Romans 8, as we will see. He says in Romans 7, I'm bound. Well, to say that that man is a believer is to forget about Romans 6 because in Romans 6 it says, if you're a Christian, you're not bound. You're not enslaved to sin anymore. As someone has pointed out, to to say that this is talking about just the the internal struggle that we feel is to not let the language of Romans 6 speak with all of its force. A, A third reason which is related... He is controlled by indwelling sin. The man in Romans 7 is controlled by indwelling sin. At verse 17, you'll see that it says, So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. It says something similar in verse 20. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Put your finger on those verses or a couple of fingers and now we're going to go to Romans 8. If you go to Romans chapter 8, verses 9 and 11, we'll see that we have the indwelling Spirit. We're indwelt by the Spirit. There's a contrast. Verse 9 says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he he does not belong to Him. 
Then verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. There's, there's a marked contrast between the two. Is it, is it sin that is controlling you or is it the Spirit that is controlling you? And it seems like it's the Spirit if we're believers, not sin. Number four, a fourth reason building upon that. He, this man in Romans 7 has nothing good dwelling in him. Nothing good is dwelling in this man. Look at verse 18. This is a strong, strong argument. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Well, we just saw that the Spirit dwells in him if he's a believer. Right? If you go back to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 and 9. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Verse 11. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He uses the exact same Greek words in all three passages. Romans 7.18. Oike, where we get oikos, house, dwelling. Dwells. Nothing good dwells in me, 7.18. 8.9. The Spirit of God dwells in me. 8.11. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in me. Nothing, spirit. Unbeliever, believer. A fifth reason. He's characterized by not doing good and practicing evil. He's characterized by not doing good and practicing evil. Look at Romans 7.19. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. And and maybe let's look at that verse even closer. It's maybe even stronger than we see it in the English. But I practice is in the present tense. I keep practicing. This is the disposition of my life. This is who I am. Also, in verse 19, before that, I do not do present tense. I am in the habit of, the pattern of my life is not doing. This is who I am. So both of those present tense. This is why the ESV translates it, I keep on doing. This is who I am as a person. Now, that's a pretty strong statement. You know who I am as a person? I am a person who doesn't do the right thing. And as a person, I'm characteristically characteristically one who does the wrong thing. That's who the Romans 7 man is. Now, sometimes we read it as that's how he feels. He feels like he's, you know, frustrated because he doesn't do the right thing. And he feels like he doesn't say feeling. This is who I am. I don't do the right thing and I do the wrong thing as a habit, as a pattern, present tense. Now, if you keep that and let it just have its teeth, if you will, it doesn't fit Romans chapter 6. It doesn't fit Romans chapter 8. It doesn't fit other scriptures either that even Paul would write. Turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. We've got to keep this 
connected. We're going to keep Romans chapter 7, verse 19. Present tense, present tense. I do not. I keep on not doing, if you will. I, I, I practice. I keep on practicing evil. So with those two ideas in mind, if you go to Galatians chapter 5, which the Apostle Paul also wrote, he says something very similar. In fact, almost identical. In fact, he uses the identical word, the identical tense. Look at Galatians chapter 5 where he says in verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. Okay, so those are the kind of things he wouldn't want to do, right? Keep reading then. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice present tense, practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Practice, present active, just like Romans 7.19. He uses the same verbiage. He uses the same wording. Galatians 5, clearly, if this is the pattern of your life, this is who you are as a person, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. You're an unbeliever. He uses the same verbiage in Romans chapter 7. And we're wondering, is he talking about a Christian or not a Christian? I say, let the Bible interpret the Bible, go to Galatians 5, and you have to conclude that in Romans 7, he's not talking about a Christian. He's talking about an unbeliever who is trying to obey God because he's religious, because he's a Pharisee like Paul. He's speaking of his past, and, and he wants to do this because that's really what he's supposed to do, but he can't, so he's frustrated. And the pattern of his life, not just his feeling, is doing the wrong thing, not doing the right thing. The solution is Christ. He needs to be saved, not just sanctified. We're not going to take the time to go there, but if you went to 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 10, you'd see the same. He uses different Greek words, but the same argumentation. It's a different person writing, so that makes sense. It's practicing sin, practicing sin, practicing sin. It's a strong argument. A sixth reason the man in Romans chapter 7 is to be seen as an unbeliever is because he is a prisoner of sin. He is a prisoner of sin. I know some of these are overlapping. But let's go ahead and look at chapter 7, verse 23. In 7.23 it says, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. And notice this in 7.23, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Whoever this man is, he says, I am a prisoner to the law of sin. Not I feel like I'm a prisoner. I am a prisoner. Objective reality, not subjective feelings. I am a prisoner, making me a prisoner of the law of sin. Put your finger on 7.23. Go to Romans 8.2 and put your finger there. Whoever this guy is, he's a prisoner to the law of sin. Well, that doesn't sound like a Christian based upon Romans 8.2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ, Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin. Law of sin, law of sin. One man is a prisoner of it. The other one is free. One man is an unbeliever. One man is a believer. It's pretty clear from that perspective. Supporting this would be Romans chapter 6, verse 14. In Romans 6, 14, 
It says, For sin shall not be master over you. Sin shall not be master over you. And he's using shall in an old English sense, not as in this would be a good idea. It's more as in will, as other translations translate it. Sin will have no dominion. Unbelievers are prisoners to the law of sin. Believers are not prisoners to the law of sin. Romans chapter 8. I told you I wasn't going to preach a sermon, but you can see I'm preaching. This is an exhortative pastoral lecture. Okay, Welcome to my study. And then we'll go through the whole thing together. But how do we think through these kinds of issues? Even hard issues. Number seven, a seventh reason the man in Romans chapter 7 should be seen as an unbeliever is because he's enslaved to sin. Overlap, I know. I just said prisoner of sin. Now I'm going to say enslaved to sin because I'm, I'm picking up on different words that are used in the text. Look at verse 25. In verse 25 it says, partially through the verse, So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving... He uses the word for, for, for slave. Duluo, where we get doulos, slave. I am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Okay, what I want to do, my mind, is to serve God, just like any Pharisee would. Serving in the present tense. But what in reality happens is, what does he say at the end of the verse? With my flesh, the law of sin. This is what I keep doing. I'm serving the law of sin. I'm the doulos, the slave of the law of sin. That's what he's saying there in 25. Well, the huge problem with that is Romans 6. Romans 6 talks about us being unified with Christ when we believe in Him. And when we believe in Him, we're not enslaved to sin anymore. We're not the doulos of sin anymore. We are freed from the power of sin. And now we have the power to do the right thing. Look at Romans chapter 6 again. Romans 6.17, But thanks be to God through, uh, though you were, Romans 6.17, Though you were slaves of sin. 7.25, he's saying, I am present tense a slave of sin. In 6.17, you were slaves of sin. That's you as an unbeliever. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching which you were committed and having been freed from sin. You're not a doulos of sin anymore. Verse 20, we already saw it. You were slaves of sin. And then he goes on to say in verse 22, now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. And he talks about eternal life, sanctification, and so on. You see what's happening. There's, there's, There's a strong contrast between... What's true of someone who is in Christ and this man in Romans chapter 7? Totally different. An eighth reason to take this man as an unbeliever is because he is of flesh. He's described as of flesh, which is a way of saying of sin. Doesn't Look at verse 14 and you'll see what I mean. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. I am of flesh. 
Okay, put your finger on 714 if you would. I am of flesh. This is who I am. Go to 8.6. And in 8.6 he says, For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. If you drop... If, if he means the same thing by those two very similar phrases. You've got unbeliever and believer. Who I am? Who am I? I am of flesh. And he goes on to say the mindset on the flesh is death. Seems to be the same idea and they would be in contrast. If that doesn't work for you and that's not enough of a convincing argument in this of flesh idea, if you go back to 7.5, so we're in 7.14 is the key passage were of flesh, compare that to 7.5, and it seems that everyone agrees that 7.5 is talking about an unbeliever. And he says, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death, unbeliever. 7.14 really doesn't look like a believer if he's of flesh in light of 7.5 and light of 8.6. Let's move to a ninth reason the man in Romans chapter 7 should be seen as an unbeliever. And in a sense, this reason is now time to start talking about the other view and the strengths of the other view's argument. But I'm going to reword it to support my view. Just because he says he wants to obey the law doesn't mean he's a believer. Just because he says he wants to obey the law doesn't mean he's a believer. That would be a ninth reason. Now, I say it this way because in Romans 7, Paul is saying really positive things about the law and about wanting to do the right thing. And so the view that says this man in Romans chapter 7 is a believer essentially says only a believer would want to do the law of God. Only a believer would have this kind of desire to do the right thing and obey God's law. And that's a good... They get a point for that, okay? When I've held that view in the past, I would have used that argumentation. But in light of Romans 6, in light of all the contrasts, in light of all the, the, the radical contrasts, I say, you know what? Let's think about this, this argument a little bit more, and I'm going to word it in my favor. Just because there's a desire doesn't guarantee you're a believer. He says positive things like in 722, For I joyfully concur that the law of God, with the law of God in the inner man. That, that's... If I just had that verse, I might think, you know what, he must be a believer to have that kind of desire. But then I look at the surrounding verses, contrast them with Romans 6 and Romans 8, and I think maybe maybe we need to think about this a little longer. Can you think of any unbelievers who, who have a desire, I'm not saying a pure desire, but who have a strong desire to do something that would honor God? Can you think of any unbelievers that would have a strong desire? I'm not saying it's a pure desire to obey the law of God. Well, I can. His name is Paul. Uh, Paul the Pharisee. 
If anybody, if you would have asked Paul the Pharisee what his number one goal in life was as an unbeliever, I don't think anybody's stretching anything to say it wouldn't take very long for it to come out. I want to honor God. I want to please God. I want to obey God. I want to keep the law. It's no wonder Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, what does he say? He says, as to the law, found blameless. I was a fanatic for the law. I was all about the law. I was a Pharisee. This is not a mystery. Now again, we we know enough to know enough about who people really are in light of Romans chapter 3 to say, you know what, it was a perverted desire. It wasn't pure. It wasn't genuine. It wasn't saving. But make no mistake about it. It came from the heart. It was passionate. It's who he was. It's what he lived for. And so to say that someone who has a desire to obey God or voices a desire to obey God can't be a Christian is to ignore the facts. Even in Romans chapter 9, if you want to go there, you can see Israel. Even Israel as a nation is described in having such a desire. As perverse as it may have been, it was their desire. It was their, their pursuit. In Romans chapter 9, verse 31, it says, But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, did not arrive at the law. They didn't come by faith, but nevertheless, notice what it says. They were in pursuit. They, they wanted to be all about the law. There's no question about that. Passionate pursuit. A tenth reason to take the man in Romans chapter 7 to be an unbeliever and not a believer is because it seems likely that the man he was talking about earlier in Romans 7 is the same man he's talking about in 7.14 to 25. The context of chapter 7. Now again, I'll be honest and say, I'm actually going to to, to go to the other side's strong point and reword it in my favor to answer the objection. Here's what happens. In Romans, in the earlier verses of Romans chapter 7, all the way down even through verse 13, it seems pretty clear he's talking about an unbeliever. We talked about that last time we were together. Well, I'm going to say it it, it can make sense that he keeps talking about an unbeliever. But the other position says, no, there's a big change. There's a big shift in 14 because if you look at 14, he starts talking in the here and now. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Notice the I am and and what I'm drawing out there is he shifts voice. Before verse 14, he's talking about what has happened in the past. Unbeliever. Then he shifts voice in verse 14 and he's saying, this is how it is now. This is how it is now. This is how it is now. Which is a strong argument for the view that says he's a believer. He's a believer because he's talking about the here and now. I will grant that's the best argument. It's a good argument. You want to use that argument if you hold to the believing view. You'll make me squirm. But, in light of all of the evidence, in light of Romans 6, not a slave to sin. Romans 7, are a slave to sin. 
not bound, Romans 6, 7, are bound, Romans 8, not of flesh, Romans 7, of flesh, in light of this whole big picture, these absolutes, not just feelings, but these absolute contrasts, I have to say, wait a second, could it be, is it grammatically possible for him to shift voice talking past tense before in verse chapter 7 to chapter 7 verse 14 and following, talking in the here and now. Is it possible to do that but still be talking about the past? And the answer is yes. Like in other languages in the Greek New Testament and in, in, in the Greek language, it's possible. It's used at times as a literary device. It's used to drive home and make a big radical point. If you read some Greek grammars, some of them call it the historical present or the dramatic present. And the idea is to make it vivid. Yes, I'm still talking about the past. And and I'm going to say, you know what? That would fit the flow of things. He's still talking about the past, but he's speaking of it in the here and now to bring out its vividness. This is not a slam dunk argument. I'm acknowledging that. But I'm taking the argument from the other side and saying, you know what? It's not a deal killer. He may very well be. In fact, I think he is in light of all the other evidence. He's saying, yes, in the here and now, but he's doing it to get our attention. He's doing it for us to see just how horrific this problem is. And how real it is to him. He's speaking from experience because he's a Pharisee. And so when he, he, he's speaking of himself, he's using this dramatic present or this historical present. That's why he can say what he says in the voice that he says it in. And finally, number 11. An eleventh reason to take this as an unbeliever. Are we on number 11? Okay, good. Because I have five more. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Let's have this be a summary one. This man is totally defeated by the power of indwelling sin. This man is totally defeated. The Romans 7.14 to 7.25 man is totally defeated by sin. When you read it, please, to the best of your ability, take out your pre-understanding. We all have it. And don't read it as he's feeling this way subjectively. Because that's not what he's saying. He's saying this is how it is. And definitively, what I want to do, I do not do. Characterizing my life. And what I don't want to do, I do. Not just feelings. This is just concrete reality. I'm in bondage to sin. That there's no hope in Romans chapter 7, verses 14, until you get to verse 25. There's no hope. This is absolute defeated life. But this is not true for the Christian. 
How about Galatians 5.24? Galatians 5.24 says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. When there's union with Christ, there's union with His crucifixion. Okay, And with that also, Romans chapter 6, and I know I keep going there, but I'll go there one more time. You are not only united with Christ in His death, dying to sin, you're also united with Christ in His resurrection. There is hope. There is victory. But there is no victory in Romans chapter 7 until you get to the end there in 725. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's victory. As if to say, remember what we learned in Romans 6. As if to say, and just wait for what we're going to hear in Romans chapter 8. Hopeless, 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 hopeless. Not just feeling hopeless, actually hopeless. Christ is the answer. The Gospel is the answer. He's key to the whole thing. And so I would say to you, if you... If you See yourself as the Roman 7 person. Not just feeling that way at times, but if you see yourself as that person, I am not going to say that in Romans 7, 14 to 24, you should find comfort. You should find hope. Because you know what? You and the great, wonderful Apostle Paul you're like this. You should have great assurance. Just reread those verses. There is no hope. There's no hope whatsoever in those verses. It's absolute defeat. Defeat. The hope comes in 25. Christ is the answer. Which I'm arguing, it's Him saying, the Gospel is the answer. When you believe in Christ, and then you can learn what happens in union with Christ in Romans 6, and now guess what? You're not in shackles anymore. doesn't mean you're not going to struggle. That's Galatians 5. You will struggle, both with what's inside of you and then Ephesians chapter 6, what's outside of you. The Christian life is hard. But there is no hope in Romans 7, 14 to 24. That just says the Christian life is impossible. Or how about life is impossible? I'm going to send you to 25, and then I'm going to send you to Romans chapter 6, and then I'm going to send you to Romans chapter 8, and say there's hope, and the hope is in Christ. Cling to Him, embrace Him, find hope in Him. But be very careful of finding hope and being just like the Apostle Paul in 7:14 to 24. Because an honest reading says there is no hope. There's no hope at all. Hope is in Christ. I don't know if I've been persuasive or not. I've tried my best. We'll continue to get along if you take the opposing view. But think about how great Christ is. I do care, so this sounds wrong, but for effect, let me say, I don't care which view you hold. <laughs> I'm not going to die on this hill. But I do care that we don't lose sight of Christ. He's the hero of this whole thing. He's where the hope is found. He is key in all of this.
And I commend you to him and him to you. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning and for this exercise of working through a passage like this in a little bit different way. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for so many folks here at Omaha Bible Church that want to try to think through issues and and begin grappling with issues that perhaps they hadn't even thought about before. Uh, We're called and prayed for even in Colossians to be loving you with our minds. And I'm thankful that we can engage our minds and we can be thinking about these things. Lord, may everyone who is here find hope and victory in Christ for salvation and for sanctification, ultimately so you are glorified and so that you are honored. In Jesus' name, amen.